Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, a game design enthusiast, role-playing game editor, indie hustler slash promoter and interview podcaster. You can find me on Twitter at IamFofos and on itch.io at blue-golem-games.itch.io. This week, I'm interviewing Senza Leno, co-host of the Emmy-nominated She's a Super Geek, an actual play podcast highlighting women as GMs. Sass Geek is one of the reasons I got into podcasting, so it was a great honour to have her on the show today. This episode, amongst many other things, we talk about Toining Point, a story game she co-wrote with Phil Vecchione of Encoded Designs, which focuses on a single momentous life decision. It's a very neat little game that hopefully will be coming to Kickstarter soon. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. Today we're talking to Sender Leno. Hi, Sender. Hi, how are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Uh, I was about. I was quite honoured to have you on the show, so thank you very much. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game space? Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, firstly, I am also honoured to be here, so thank you very much for having me. That's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so I, um, gosh, I do a lot of stuff in the indie game space. So um, I, I think most people probably initially know me for doing um, She's a Super Geek, which is the actual play RPG podcast that highlights women as GMs. And and we got nominated for an Emmy last year. So that was pretty uh, fantastic. Yes. Congratulations for that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm still really excited about it, honestly. And then I also do Pandas Talking Games uh, with uh, Phil Vecchione, which is a GMing advice show that started off as a short form show and is now more like 45 minutes long with a bunch of outtakes. And we have a lot of fun answering listener listener questions. Um, And then I uh, also run the Misdirected Mark Productions podcast network. We are a network that does a ton of different podcasts about RPGs, mostly in the indie space, but with a couple that are also Dungeons and Dragons focused. And... Gosh, uh, I also write games. I've written several and I'm working on one really hard right now that I think we're going to talk about in a bit. I hope so. And then I also write articles for Gnome Stew, the gaming blog. There's a lot. <laughs> that That is a lot, yeah. Everybody that I've spoken to so far has been doing at least three or four different things in the space, which is, I think, just goes to show how dedicated people are. Well, and the other thing is you start one thing and then people start asking you to do other things or you just like end up being friends with someone. Yeah. And you're like, we should do a thing. And then like the next thing you know, you're writing more game. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So watch out because it's going to come for you too. I sort of thought to myself the other week, oh, I don't have enough to do with my time. So why don't I just start a podcast? Right. (laughs) That was the decision pretty much. Yep. Yep. So yes, you've just mentioned that you're writing a game at the moment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Turning Point? Yeah. Um. So Turning Point is my current baby, and um, I'm writing it also with Phil Vecchione, and um, it is a game um about making a difficult decision as someone that isn't you. And apparently, it's been long enough since I pitched it that I've like lost track of my elevator pitch. So now you're getting the long version where I just get really excited about it again. I would say that this this whole podcast is effectively the long version of an elevator pitch. Okay, well, fantastic. Here we go. Here's the actual elevator pitch. It is a collaborative, dramatic decision-making engine, by which we mean that it is a game in which you sit down as a table of people and you create a single character who you will all share. You kind of give them you give them a life view and you kind of build a little bit of what, what the world is around them. And then you 
you put yourself into their shoes and you make some kind of difficult decision, right? So we have basically, they're kind of like, almost like playbooks, but they're more like the scenarios than like a uh, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse playbook where you're, that's like your character. Um, yeah. And we call them dilemmas, right? So that would be like, you, you could sit down and be like, today we're going to create a character who has to decide if they want to have a child or not right yeah i read through that dilemma and i thought no i can't play that right and that that the really interesting thing is there are some and depending on your life experience some of them are very personal and so it's like no i'm not sure i could play that one right and so we included two in the quick start the one that i just mentioned you know do you have a do you have a kiddo is one of those two um and the other one is do you leave your secure monetarily like good day job um for your dream job that also felt a bit too real to me, you know. <laughs> right, right. That one is really funny. We we wrote a couple of very intense ones that are not in the quick start. Um, My Kinky Life, which is um, one about um, basically being in a relationship with someone who doesn't share your sexuality and deciding like what to do about that situation. Like, do you leave? Do you stay and suppress? Like, what do you, what do you do? There's a fourth one. Um, it's called I Want a New Drug. And it is about do you decide as a character to take a brand new experimental like medical procedure or drug that would potentially resolve a chronic issue for you or potentially have some sort of massive serious side effect? Okay. Yeah. I can see maybe why you didn't put those in the quick start. Yeah. They're intense. Yeah, they are <laughs> intense. Um, and and the really interesting thing, though, and and it, so it's interesting that you brought it up, um, is that uh, while we have kind of tried to grade our dilemmas based on the potential intensity that we're guessing at, everyone's individual life experiences change that, right? Because like like you just said, you weren't sure if you could play the one about having a child. I get that, right? Because like I've had one too. It changes your perspective on how hard or not that decision might be because you've done it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When you played it on one shot, you you went through the dream job one. That seems like I think that's probably the most accessible to me. <laughs> uh, but right. The others that you've talked about there would be I'd, I'd find them difficult. I think you're going to be having more when you have the Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah, we definitely are. Oh, we haven't even talked about that yet, have we? So this game isn't out. Yet. <laughs> no, it's not out yet. You you can get the quick start right now, which is um, yeah. which is actually uh, what you've seen, right? It is. Please do get the quick start. It's very good. So, so yeah, the quick start is available actually on Drive Through RPG right now, and it comes with two dilemmas. And basically, it's half script, half rules to just basically get you sitting down at the table and run you through how to start this game and play it. Yeah, in the fastest possible way. So. When we release the entire manuscript, when we run the Kickstarter for it, there's going to be um, a lot more detailed information in it. There will be more dilemmas in it. And of course, we'll probably do some, um, not probably, I know we're going to do some dilemma stretch goals, which we're going to bring a, in a bunch of other people to write dilemmas for us, right? So we have these four that Phil and I wrote. Um, we have a couple of more kind of in the works that we may also write, but then we are also reaching out to a lot of the indie game community to basically pull folks in and get other perspectives on things, things that we haven't personally experienced, right? So we can't necessarily write a decision that would be true and honest to the kind of feelings that come with making a decision, right? Do you want to name drop anyone or <laughs> Bill's <laughs> top secret at the moment? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to share anybody. Right, that's yet. fine. Don't worry about it. No, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. That's all. Right. 
we've got agreement from three people that I'm really excited about and are kind of poking around deciding what the fourth one is going to be that's in the actual book itself. And then probably um, we'll just do more and more stretch goals from more and more folks that will be PDFs very cool. to go with the Kickstarter. It's very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> have you run a Kickstarter before? I never have. No. no. So I'm terrified. Fortunately, um, so Phil runs Encoded Designs, right? So he's yeah. now done can't remember if he's done two or three now at this point um, that have all been very successful. When, when I say very successful, like we're not talking about like the one million dollars, but we are talking about like it funds, it funds very successfully. Everybody gets paid. Everybody's really happy with the communication and it, people get their stuff on time yeah. kind of thing. Right. So running a Kickstarter yeah. would, would make me very anxious. I would, I would find that difficult. So it's good that you can go in with someone who's done it before. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not even personally probably going to be running a whole lot of things because like I'm like the hired on author for Encoded oh, okay. Designs right, for this yeah. particular production. But it's still like really intimidating. So they have like a bunch of people who who kind of already know how to do this and like, you know, spreadsheet calculations about, well, you know, if we have this many people and we print this many books, then this is what our cost calculation is. And like yeah. what, how many people do we have to hit before we can afford the next level for, you know, adding color or whatever. I don't know what it's going to be, but like, for yeah. example, so I'm very grateful that I'm not having to do those parts. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit more about how the game works. Yeah, absolutely. So, so essentially it, it and just to be clear, this is not something that was built to be run like as an ongoing campaign. Um, I usually find that it runs somewhere between two to four hours. Two is very tight and works best if people have already played it before and you don't have to explain the rules. Um, it usually lands somewhere right around three to three and a half. So just, you know, in terms of setting up the correct expectation of what you're, what you're looking at here. Essentially, the way that it works is you, you sit down at the table as a group and you pick one of these dilemmas. Um, and, and so the, the very first part of this is, of course, making sure that you're picking a dilemma that everyone is comfortable playing. Yeah. <laughs> um, because as we discussed, there's a certain level of intensity to this game. And yeah. you are sitting down you know, with that in mind, right? So you clear anything off the table that doesn't work for anybody. Whatever's left, you make a decision about what everybody's most interested in playing. It's very important to me and to my co-author <laughs> That you then have a safety conversation, which if you actually get the quick start rules, like it's something that we re revisit several times, basically in character creation process and stuff to just make sure as you go that everybody is still on the same page and that you're still setting yourselves up for success and uh, not for something that you wouldn't be happy with happening, right? Because there is a difference yeah. between discomfort as in like, I haven't experienced this before and it seems very intense and being in distress. Yeah. Right. So I think that that's a, that's a key difference. And it's one for this game very specifically. Like you can experience discomfort and that's okay as long as it remains in the realm of what you are able to safely experience. And then if you are in distress because you are actually hitting bad anxiety levels or something, or you've experienced something that's happened and it didn't end well for you, whatever it is, we just want to avoid that part. Yeah. So I, I'll just say that up front. Like there's a lot of safeties threaded throughout this. Yeah, there are. So you sit down, you pick that dilemma, you talk through um, kind of what, what the boundaries of the space that you're going to play in are going to be. And then you create a character that you think would be interesting if they were making that decision. And that means that you're picking, you know, who they are, like, what are their pronouns? Anybody that would be important to them or important to the scenario. Like if you're doing something like the baby blues dilemma, which is, you know, deciding if you're going to have a kid, 
Um, then like, do you have a spouse? Do you have a significant other? Would you be adopting? How will you have this child, right? Yeah. And you kind of make all of those decisions. You make decisions about where is this happening? And the default for all of our dilemmas right now is pretty modern. But having just run this game a ton, um, both for playtesting and for demo purposes at a lot of different conventions, I've run a bunch of these dilemmas in settings that they weren't, quote, intended for, unquote. But um, what you'll discover is that a lot of times it's like, cool, we wrote this for a modern setting, but it will work anywhere where, you know, X, Y, Z is a thing, right? Yeah, like, yeah. so for Baby Blues, it'll work in any time period in which you have the ability to choose not to have a child versus have a child, like usually meaning like there has to be some sort of contraceptive available. Yeah, I was thinking that that could be really interesting to play in a very far future setting, like sort of Ian M. Banks setting it might be very interesting, serious dynamic to to how that would work. Right. So that's that's actually the one that I played in a sci-fi setting. We were on a space station and you could choose to have a child or not, but there was also like a limited number of new humans that you could bring on board. That's very right? interesting. And it was super interesting because it was like our character was dating the person who ran the space station. And so in this particular case, it would have been like a childbirth situation. So she didn't have to put into the lottery that everyone else had to put into to see if she could have a kid or not. Right. And there was like this whole super weird political dynamic that it added to it. It was very amazing. That does sound cool. She decided not to. <laughs> she decided not to. And it meant that she had to break up with him and stuff. It was very intense. Anyway, so moving right along. So you pick a dilemma and then you create this person. And once you've created the person, the dilemma includes five moments. And the moments are basically scenes that you'll play out. And they're not super specific scenes in terms of like, you will be at the dentist's office doing XYZ or whatever it is. And it picks two emotions or two kind of, it's not quite emotions, is it? it yeah, they're, they're kind sort of, of two emotional outcomes to a scene. Yeah. Two emotional outcomes. And it gives some examples, but they're very open. And actually, I really appreciate that because sometimes when you play through one of these games, it's a lot less freeform. And it's like, now go back to this point in your past and play out this. And that's not what you do here and it makes it more dynamic and you can change what you want in play and if one scene doesn't make sense following on from another scene then you know just pick it up and run something different instead also like it would be impossible because we have no idea what character you're actually playing no, these with to true. make it really specific yeah. right and they're just kind of suggestions are on for the actual scene setups but so so it'll say something like you know a time when you liked something that was not publicly admired yeah. or whatever. And so you might then play a scene about acceptance versus rejection. And so from that, you could go a lot of ways with that. The example that I usually use is something like, you know, you're in high school and one of your friends discovers that like you're hiding a bunch of Barbies under your bed that you play with still or something like that, right? right? So does that friend then accept that about you and be like, no, whatever, it's cool. Or do they reject that and then everybody's making fun of you at school the next day? Yeah. So like, what 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 is the outcome? And the reason that we're looking for that is because um, we're determining kind of what the emotional landscape of this character has been up to this point where they're having to make this big decision, yeah. right? Because having that experience and whether you got accepted or rejected in that moment is going to influence if you feel like going forward, you're going to be accepted for being different or rejected, yeah. right? Because you had that moment already and it's training your brain. 
So the other part of these moments is that um, there's a mechanic called heartstrings, which are basically to express our personal, our actual us, not the character, right? Our personal investment in the scene. So you pull heartstrings essentially when you are like, oh, this this rings bells for me, or like, I relate to that, or you're like, wow, they're doing a really good job role playing this, or you're like, oof, that was a lot, whatever it is, right? When you have an emotional reaction yeah. to what's happening in the scene, you pull a heartstring. This is one of the two things that I particularly admired about this design is that you have these two mechanics which deliberately bring the player into the character. So yeah. you have this thing at the start where you're asked to give the character a gift, which is something from your own experience or from just something that's about yourself. And then you have this yes. heartstrings <laughs> mechanic as well, where you are deliberately feeding back as to whether you are emotionally invested in this particular scene whether there is emotional resonance in this scene with, with how you feel or something from your own past. And that's a very neat way to engage the player in this otherwise potentially abstract character that they're talking about and could become quite detached from. Yeah, the reason that I laughed a little bit when you pointed that one out is because the addition of of the giving of gifts, um, where we're specifically asking for pieces of, of the players to invest them in that character, was a direct result <laughs> Um, of a playtest in which what you have just described happened. Right. It's not that funny of a story. It just, it makes me always laugh because Jim McClure broke my game. Nice. <laughs> he broke it and now it's better, but uh, I blame Jim McClure. <laughs> I feel like what could have happened if you didn't have those was that you could talk very mechanically about how this person is feeling. It wouldn't ring any bells with you. Now, there are maybe safety implications to what that means, but... For sure. On the whole, I would say if previously your game was not working, then it's definitely working out the way you wanted it to now. And this is a this is a very neat way of pulling people in. It always ends up being one of my questions that I look at is, um, well, I say, who are the characters? What do they do? And how does this engage the player? And basically, you've done all of those within about 10 seconds of reading through the game. So, you know, absolute kudos <laughs> there. It's a, it's a very slick design. So, yeah, awesome. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'm a fan of it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's good to be a fan of your own game. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned this in your text, but it's inspired by um, Contempt from The Quiet Year. Yes. The Quiet Year. Yes. An amazing game. Yeah. Also completely different than this, but amazing. <laughs> yeah. I played it play by post last year and it was amazing, but we didn't use Contempt at all. <laughs> I was disappointed. Um, yeah. So the purpose of Contempt is being able to express that, like, I'm mad at what you did, yeah. basically. Right. And the purpose of the heartstrings is very similar because it's we wanted a way to express like you're connecting with me, right? So it's a, it's expressing a different thing. We tied them back in then mechanically because so at the end of the moment that you play, you add them all up and um, and get a tally from that. And then you also, we were talking about how those moments have those two kind of emotional outcomes, right? So say acceptance versus rejection. So when you come to like the moment in the scene where it's going to break in one direction or another, it's the stakes that the scene have, has been about the entire time. Then you pause the scene and everybody at the table votes on which way it's going to go, if it's going to go acceptance or if it's going to go rejection. And then you play out the rest of that scene in whichever direction yeah. you know they feel it went. And then what happens is you take that total of heartstrings and you apply it to um, yeah. that emotion. It signifies the amount of intensity that we associate with that experience for yeah. that character. 
we're only going to have five moments of this character's life. They are the five most important moments of the character's life for the purposes of the decision that they're making. But that's how we're kind of waiting each moment that actually occurred. Because you can have some that like are just all the heartstrings disappear off the table. And then you can have another one where like oh, a couple go and, and like it's fine. And it's not a judgment on the scene or anything like that. It's just yeah. how we're connecting to it. And so at the very end of the game, after you've played through all of the moments, what you're actually doing is taking the moments that fell on each side of the decision. Say we're back to, you know, do you have a child? Do you not have a child? There are emotions associated with how your moments could have gone that that we would put into the like have a child yeah. category, right? Like gaining energy by taking care of someone and that sort of thing versus like craving independence might fall under the like don't have a child yeah. category, right? I'm not saying the exact words because um, <laughs> there is there is no good and bad decisions here, right? Like they're just decisions, yeah. right? Like they're just kind of decisions we all make all the time, right? Yeah. There's no value judgment on which way a character decides to do something. We're just playing to yeah. find out what are they going to do. So once you've played all the moments, you put all the heartstrings that were associated, for example, in the don't have a child category, you add them up over there. All the heartstrings that fell into the do have a child category, you add them up over there. And then you see which thing they decided based on which side of that um, equation has the most yeah. heartstrings. And then that gets played out as a scene. Yes. But this, this <laughs> whole thing is bookended by the turning point scene. That's a very sweet way to frame the whole game. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's nice. It is nice. We added that. That It wasn't originally there. We were like, we need something. <laughs> it really needs it. And I, I like the way that it, there's some text, isn't it, that you read out and it basically is hanging on that decision. Yes. It's covered quite well by the by the cover illustration, actually, which I'm now looking at. Um, yeah. That's almost exactly it, isn't it? The cover seems to be, will you marry me? It's and she hasn't moment. decided. And then and yep. it, could be, it could be either direction. <laughs> it could be yes, it could be no. We don't know. But then you find out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Yes, I really like it as a game. I think it's um it's great. It's something I'd like to play. I Thank kind of you. feel like awesome. It might be a little bit therapeutic, a little bit cathartic to play, but also that could be potentially a bit scary. So <laughs> maybe don't. I don't know. Right? Yeah. It can be. I have played it at a bunch of conventions with people that I don't know, but I'm also very comfortable running it, and so I really like playing it with people that I'm very comfortable uh -huh. with because I feel like I can go further. And I don't have to play it safe on things as much because right. um, I can I can trust to the boundaries that we've expressed yeah. and all laid out and all of those things a little bit more when I have a little bit more experience with someone. You have that background emotional shorthand with them. You know, you, you can say things like, and this was like that time without having to necessarily go into yes. all that detail, which could potentially be difficult. Right. So one of the things that does run through this book, which you've touched upon, or actually you've done more than touched upon, um, is themes of safety. And this is more or less the first time that we've talked about safety on Yes Indeed. And I think this is a very good game about which to do so because there are a lot of safety tools spread throughout this. And because it's in the real world and it's about real people, it could be difficult for people to play it. I was wondering if you would perhaps elaborate a little bit on some of the safety mechanisms that you've built into the game. Yeah, absolutely. So the first two are safety tools that I mean, I, I see them lots and lots and lots of places, and I don't play games without them anymore, um, personally. Which um, the, So the very, very first one is just the absolute barest minimum, which is the open table policy. Um, and what that really just comes down to at its most basic level is the people who are playing your game are more important than the game, 
right? So if anybody needs to get up and walk away from the table, whether that's permanently or just to take a break, whatever it is, that's fine. Yeah. Right. It's just making it absolutely clear. If you need to do something, you do it. If you need to step out of the game because you've gone from fun to unpleasant, then you step out of the game. If you need to step away just to take care of yourself because you need a little break because that last scene was really intense or even just because like your mom is calling and you don't know why and you just need to step away from this table for a second and make sure it's not an emergency, right? Like it doesn't have to be something that you only engage because you've um, already crossed the line. It can be something that you engage for uh, managing how close you're getting to the line or because life is still happening despite the fact that you're playing a game, whatever it is, right? So that's the first thing. The first thing is the open table policy. The second one is uh, lines and veils. And what lines and veils are is it's having a discussion. um, And there are many ways to do this. And I have settled on the one that I personally think think works the best for me. And so I will describe that to you. But there are, like I said, many ways to do it. There's a lot of debate about how to do it most effectively without, well, we'll get into it, but basically without having to force everybody to spew all of their potential trauma onto the table. This is why I have settled into this is my favorite way. So the way that lines and veils work is lines are hard lines. If something is a line, it's not going to happen in the game. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to get near it. We're just, it's out, right? It is out of the game. So, for example, usually for me, like my standard lines and veils, I don't do sexual violence in games. That's not a thing I want to deal with in games. So, no, that's a line. Yes, that should be a line in everybody's game. (laughs) That's one for me. Or like um, violence against children is another one that I'm like, here are some lines. We're not doing these things. But somebody might have some lines that are more personal than that, that maybe they don't want to say like that, right? Which for this gets interesting. So, veils are when you say, It's okay if this thing comes up or it happens in the game, but I don't want to play through it. So those are kinds of things that frequently end up being like a sexual encounter. Cool. These two characters can have sex. I don't have a problem with that at all. But like they kiss and like start taking their socks off or whatever. And we draw that curtain like we don't need to see this or describe it or play through it at the table. You know, we can we can draw the curtain and we can come back to them, you know, as they're snuggling later or whatever. That's just like the example that I always think of (laughs) because it's something that's like it's not a problem to me if two adult characters are engaging in whatever they want to engage in, but I don't need to play it at the table. So having said that, there's there's a lot of different thoughts about dealing with lines and veils. I think they're really important in general. And But there's a lot of discussion right now about safety in the indie RPG community, which I think is wonderful and amazing. And so our views on these things continue to evolve. And whenever you play this episode, my views may already have also evolved because someone may tell me why this is not as effective as I think it is, right? Or whatever it is, right? So that's just a heads up. That's why I think it's important to have this conversation because it is happening a lot in indie at the moment. Whereas in mainstream games, you you don't see these conversations happening. Yeah. I don't want to get involved with the general (laughs) mayhem that happens on Twitter every time somebody mentions a safety mechanic. But yeah, it it is a lot of block bait right there. I mean, it's just people I never want to play games with, it seems. I mean, there was a really interesting article that actually just actually was a thread. So, but it it floated past my feed and it was, um, it was really just a thoughtful mini Twitter essay about how, or like why people get to the point where they think that safety is inherently somehow bad or like that it's not something that we should be concerned about. There's this thing that happens when we talk about safety 
which is you get really false equivalencies between things like we talked about sexual violence being one of my lines, right? But you get really strange equivalencies between things like sexual violence, which has affected real people who might be sitting at your table. Yeah. And like, so they don't want us to have scary haunted castles anymore because it might make them uncomfortable. But a scary haunted castle is not a real thing that has happened to people. And sexual violence is something that very probably could have happened to someone at your table. Why would you make them relive that just so that you have a plot point? Yeah. Why would you do that to someone that you like? Yeah. Right? Aren't these people your friends? <laughs> Let alone people that you don't know, you know? Right. Don't do this at right. conventions, definitely, but also don't do it to your friends. Well, I mean, I've heard some stories about convention games that are like, whoa. So really what it comes down to is like there is a, a distinction between being able to play pretend and being privileged enough that you get to assume that none of the things you're playing pretend with have happened to any of the people at your table. And there's some yeah. pretty clear lines like I haven't been in a haunted castle, but I have been in an abusive marriage. Right. So like <laughs> I don't really want to do that again, but I'm cool with a haunted castle. And if you can tell me up front, this is a game about abusive marriages, then I'll be like, cool, you go have fun. I don't have any problem with you playing it as long as everybody at the table is cool with you playing it, which means that you needed to talk to them before the game started so that they know that that's what the game is about. Yeah. Right? As long as everybody is okay with it, I think that's that's kind of acceptable, yeah. That's where it comes, what it really comes down to is like, did you tell them what it was about? <laughs> yeah. Did they know up front? Right. I mean, this is this is all about like informed consent. Exactly the words I'm thinking of, yeah. <laughs> that's a thing we should just be into in general. Yeah. <laughs> that's my two cents on safety. Looking at it that way, like the Evil Hat, was it Evil Hat? Uh, it, Monty Cook Games. Monty Cook Games released the pamphlet Consent in Gaming, and the backlash against this was was something else. And not just on Twitter, but like on Drive Through RPG, the reviews and the comments that were left. I don't understand why you think this is a controversial thing. People read it as like you can't do that thing that you've been doing for twenty years. Um, yeah. and it it isn't really about that. It's more like, did you ask your players? Like, did you let them know that that was going to happen in your game, yeah. and were they cool with it? And if yeah. everybody was like, yes, that's okay, then awesome, more power to you. Go do the thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. But there is a lot of really reactionary stuff where people act like involving safety in their games in any way is going to somehow constrict them from being able to play the game that they want to play. My personal experience is exactly the opposite, right? Like I play with safety in my games and because I play with safety in my games, I can go way closer to things that are lines and veils for me than I would be able to if I didn't make it clear like this thing can't come up at the table. Yeah. Because I can like go dance along some edges or whatever because I know that we're not going to tip over the edge Yeah. because we talked about it. I can get very emotionally involved in my game. Gosh, like my favorite LARP experience that happened for my birthday where I was literally clinging to someone's lapels, bawling my eyeballs out because we only had 15 minutes left until the moon came up and I turned into a werewolf and killed everyone. But I wouldn't be able to invest that much of myself if I didn't feel like there were ways that I could express a need for safety in that moment if I had needed it, right? Yeah. Having the ability to say, oof, this is too much or slow down or any of those things, I think is really important to actually like basically letting you do more. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned LARP because these mechanisms yes. have, have existed in LARP for... They're way ahead of us. <laughs> well, forever, basically. Because... A lot longer. <laughs> it's very interesting that now the indie scene 
especially things like um, story games and sword dream and all of that is bringing a lot more LARP components in. And at the same time, we're seeing a kind of a meteoric rise in safety tools in games. That doesn't feel like those two things are unrelated, actually. No, I would. I think they're very related. And so, I mean, I think a large part of the reason that LARP was way ahead of tabletop games in this is because when you start talking about LARP, now you're talking about consent for things like physical touch. Yeah. I've just met this person, but our characters are in whatever situation. If I am about to hug them or pretend to slap them or something like this is their actual body and I need to make sure that that's okay. Yeah. So like there's a level of intensity. But I think that it's important that we acknowledge that you can achieve those same kinds of levels of intensity emotionally at the table, even if you aren't touching someone because, you know, feelings are feelings and bleed is bleed. So yeah, I mean, it's a good segue because the the final the final official safety mechanism that we built into Turning Point is based very directly on the LARP OK check-in. It's almost as if I planned it that way. I know. <laughs> um, professional is what you are. It's the OK check-in, which is a, a, a series of hand gestures that basically allow you to non-verbally communicate where you are in a, in a moment or a scene. Um, so that you can use like a thumbs down as a like, I'm not okay, make it stop. Yeah. And there's a, a hand up kind of halt gesture, which is a, like, I'm still okay, but you're like starting to walk very close to things that are not okay. So like maybe yeah. don't push any harder. Yeah. There's thumbs up, which is like, yes, bring it. And then there's uh, the like flat wobbly hand, which is the like, uh, you're asking me to answer this question about how I'm feeling right now. And I literally can't. I have yeah. no idea how I'm feeling right now. And that in that scenario, we actually do a similar thing to the thumbs down, which is let's stop the game and figure out how you're feeling before we proceed and know if we're like hurting you. <laughs> right. Because that's worthwhile. Yeah, that's a really nice addition. Um, I, and the other thing that I've just discovered about using the OK check-in is instead of the, the X card at conventions and stuff, where you're all sitting around a very large table, it resolves the issue of, I can't reach the X card in the middle. Yep. It resolves the issue of, I am about to push this scene way further. So I can specifically ask everyone to check in. I can, I can yeah. say, I can basically throw the hand gesture for like, is everybody OK as I say the thing? And then if yeah. we're not, we can just retcon that real quick, go forward. There's a bunch of other safety tools out there. All of them are great. Um, that would be sort of using yeah. the like um, Bree, um, Bo, Sheldon's. Um, I was about to mention this. They talked about how how they found the X card particularly challenging um, because it took away their their player agency. It took away the agency of the situation. So they couldn't play any games that had the X card as a safety mechanic when it was being touted as kind of like a groundbreaking safety mechanic. It was actually potentially more hurtful. The X card is limited, right? Like it does one thing and it does that one thing well if everybody on the table is on board for it. And all it does is stop the game when you've already gone too far, right? Yeah. So the idea for me behind safety tools is I would like to know when we're getting close to that point so that we don't get there, right? I still want to have a way for you to tell me that we got there, but like I would like for you to be able to tell me before we cross that line so that yeah. we can change directions and not get to that point at all. You've actually headed that off very well with the safety tools you've you've suggested throughout this game, which are you tell people in advance what potentially be tr- problematic so they know. And if they get to that point, then they check in with you. Yep. And that's just a question of people feeding back properly from the situation. There's one more safety mechanic in Turning Point that is not specifically called out as a safety mechanic, and it's the sneaky hidden one in the design itself. It's something that becomes very clear, I think, when you play it, but may not be clear on paper. 
one person during each moment is playing the actual character. Yeah. Um, and then you have other characters come in as necessary. And then you actually have a chorus of people who are functioning as like the different parts of your brain who are saying like, yeah, get him, fight him. Or like, no, you should make up. And like, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Which is fun to do. But the person who plays the character, you're never having the same person play the character twice in a row. The game is really written for five people. You can play it fine with three to six-ish, really, but there are five scenes, and there are five scenes so that each person plays the character once, and then you pass it on. And playing the character kind of means you're in the hot seat of that decision-making moment, and that is usually the most intense place to be playing from because you're taking all of that on very personally. And so the fact that you don't play the character twice And the fact that you basically have these down moments between each scene where you're then passing it on to someone else, deciding what the next thing is, and basically coming back out of the character level into your personal, like, mechanical game level is actually, from a safety perspective, nobody is getting the brunt of everything and being overwhelmed by the feels part, if that makes sense. So that's the sneaky, the sneaky safety mechanism that's actually just built into the game itself. Yeah, it does take the emphasis off it. Mm-hmm. I really like this um, this idea of sharing the character between people. It's a mechanic which is which I'm seeing more. There's other there's other games that I've seen out there that are similar, where you're collectively playing a single character, kind of the opposite, I suppose, of cohort play, yeah. where you have one person playing lots of characters. Yeah, so uh, yeah. that's a nice little inversion of that trope. Yeah, the, I can think of two others off the top of my head. They're very different. The one that I've played is Everyone is John, which has some weird problematic things of its own, but it's a very funny game. And then there's one called It Was a Mutual Decision, in which you play two different people and each person is a group and you're breaking up and there might be were rats. Okay. That one is also interesting. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. <laughs> that sounds fun. Right. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. It's a sneaky safety mechanism about turning point that a lot of people don't catch on to. It does read that way because it's right there in the rules, but it's not as explicit as the other ones. It's not yeah. do this thing and it will make your game experience better. It's the game is this way because it makes your game experience better. Which... I mean, we, we wrote the other ones in as like, do this. Right. But we are using safety tools that exist outside of our game. And, you know, they they just are. And you could use them anywhere that you wanted. But they are the ones that I would recommend using for this game. Right. Versus the the way that we pass the character around and stuff that is actually written into the game. Like you, you actually can't play the game without kind of doing that stuff no. because mechanically it's part of the game. Handily, it just also happens to do some stuff for safety as well. Yeah, like the best game design. Yeah, I'm super on board with with safety that functions both as game mechanic and as safety whenever we can make that happen. Yeah, make everything do everything. Yeah, right? Yes. That's the holistic design approach. Yeah. <laughs> make it reinforce theme, make it reinforce safety, make it reinforce mechanics. So yeah, we've certainly achieved that with pretty much everything in this game. Like I said, it's very lean. Um, it's very nicely written. It's going to be very beautifully presented when I see the final thing. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Thank you. Me too. Yeah, I'm very (laughs) excited about it now. So, Senda, why don't you just tell us a little bit about where we can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. So you you can find me on Twitter. And at this point, a running gag. So my apologies. The unspellable Twitter handle 
Idella Mifflin. Um, but you can also find me on Twitter and maybe it's easier to spell at Sass Geek Podcast or at Pandas Talk Games. And I am in those places. I spend most of my time on Twitter. That's where you should find me. You can also find my articles yeah. on Gnome Stew, which is gnomestew.com. Some of them are by me and some of them are by many other very talented people. And we can find you on Sass Geek every two weeks. Yeah, it's every other Tuesday. Um, and Pandas Talk Games, which drops every single Monday. Wow. That is an intense recording schedule. As a beginner to this, I don't know how you do that. Well, thank you very much again for coming on Yes Indeed Pod. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it was a blast to talk to you. Really nice to talk about your game. Um, and I'm, as I said, very much looking forward to that coming out. And maybe speak to you again sometime in the future. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks very much then, Sender. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Sender for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. In two weeks, I'll be interviewing Mids Meinberg of Goatsong Publishing, who is not only a game designer, but also a fellow game design enthusiast who's writing a blog series called Designing the Game Feel. Lon is also a member of the San Gennaro Co-op, which is a cooperative of game creators who are fighting for better pay in the industry. Our flagship product is the Short Games Digest, and the edition for Spring 2020 has just been released and is available on DriveThruRPG. It has eight games for just $10, which is an absolute steal. Mids also contributed a game to the latest Collodium bundle, Collodium 3. It's a multi-tiered bundle on itch.io where you can get up to 17 incredible indie games starting from as little as $10. It's available until May 8th at bit.ly slash collodium3. Check the episode description for that link. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts, or consider donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamPhophos. That's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and BillMusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.